Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. We didn't wear makeup. We didn't wear pants. We didn't wear nail polish. We didn't go to movies. We didn't play cards. And if we did any of those things, we were going to hell. Welcome to the I Did Not Sign Up For This Podcast. show dedicated to highlighting the incredible stories of everyday people. No topic is off limits. Join me as we explore the lives and experiences of guests through thought-provoking, unscripted conversations. And if you enjoy this show and would like to support this podcast, consider joining my Patreon. You'll gain instant access to over 70 exclusive bonus episodes, entries into giveaways, a discount on merch, and more. Your support allows me to continue bringing you these important stories. So head over to patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this and become part of the community. I'm your host, Carling, a Canadian queer-identifying 30-something-year-old, providing a platform for the stories that need to be heard. Good morning, good afternoon, hello. Oh my gosh, I have been so stinking excited about this conversation. I feel like we booked it a while before summer, kind of, and then mm-hmm. we were, I was like looking forward to it and it popped up so quick, it feels like. It did. We scheduled it back. I scheduled it way back in early June, like right after oh. we had worked together. We scheduled yeah. it then. And I'm very much, and I thought we'd have, all, I'd have all summer to think about it. And then all of a sudden it's here. I know that's the way it happens. I, every time I think I'm going to be very well prepared for something, like I'm starting to learn that's unlikely, but. <laughs> oh, we're me. both very prepared for this. Let's yeah. Very we're prepared. very prepared. <laughs> and we just joke that you're going to try not to interview me. We're yep. both like fangirling over each other because we just <laughs> love what we're doing. And we'll just see kind of what comes from this. That sounds great. So I would love it if you could introduce yourself, say who you are, where you're from, what you do, and then we're going to get into your story. That sounds great because you know how much I love stories. Yes. So my name is Jill Davis. I live in gorgeous Colorado Springs, Colorado. I have to always say I have four kids and two grandkids and they're fabulous. I am a storytelling coach. I coach people on how to tell their stories for full impact. And really who I am in the world is just someone who loves people and who loves the human condition. I, I met you through the Pride and Joy Foundation because I was so lucky to take the keynote queers, <laughs> like public speaking, storytelling. And right. yeah, it was such a transformative experience that I'm so mm-hmm. grateful for. And just as a little drop in the bucket there, we will also be doing it in the spring. We do it every spring. So yes, I will we'll come back around the heck out of it. Yeah. Find some people that I think should take it. Thank you. So your story, we were kind of talking before we hit record about what part of the story, where to start, all this stuff. But I really do think that we start, it starts kind of at your conception or maybe just before. Before. And what got you here? I think your story is so incredible and it is why you are who you are and the gift that you bring to this world. Mm -hmm. So I think the world needs to hear it. Well, I'm always happy to talk to people about it. It's one of those stories that 
if I take a step back, Harleen, and really look at it, I'm like, oh my gosh, is that really my life? But I think most of your guests probably feel that way about their stories. But it did start before conception. I was born into, I was born in 1962. So I'm actually, you know, older than most of your guests, I think. And I love it. I turned 60 this year. It was great. But back in 1957, so way before I was born, my parents lived in a little tiny, tiny town called Leadville, Colorado. My mom actually lived in a smaller town called Buena Vista, and they had three children, my older brother, who was eight, and he had a different father. And then they had two little girls whose name were Gail and Lee. And there was one day, December 3rd, 1957, my mom looked out the window of this little apartment they lived in, and it was at the end of something called the Stockade. And it was actually a stockade from the Indian Wars. And they lived on one end, and on the other end was a restaurant and bar. And a trash truck came around the corner and ran over a dishwashing box, a, you know, one of those great big boxes. He thought it was blowing in the wind. Unfortunately, my sisters were in there, oh, and they God. were killed instantly. Yes. Oh, God. It's just, and it shaped the DNA of my family, my entire family, even though I wasn't born yet. My dad was in the mines in Leadville, so he was deep underground. It took them about 12 hours to get hold of my dad, get him out of the mines, get him down to the hospital, and the girls had already been declared dead. It sounds really shocking. I've heard this story my whole life. However, I didn't even actually know I had sisters like that until I was 10. The girls were born December 3rd, died December 3rd, 1957. My older sister was born on December 3rd, 1958. Crazy. Was the mindset, because they were they done having kids? Do you know? Mm -hmm. They said they were done after the girls were, um, that Gail and Lee were born. They always said their family was complete. And my parents were not religious at that time. When the girls died, religion became their coping technique. Mm -hmm. So they believed that my older sister, who was born on December 3rd, was God's answer to taking away their children. So she had a, dang it, I wouldn't want to be her. Yeah, that's heavy. right. That's heavy to have to come into the world to replace two children. And yeah. then 20 months after that, I had another sister who's older than I am. And she was the second. So they had their two replacement girls. And then I came along two years after that. And I was a girl and they wanted a boy and they had asked God for a boy. And instead I came along, which is honestly, though, how I got my name. So I was supposed to be Jack. And my older sister said, well, since she can't be a Jack, let's just name her Jill. And there wow. we go. <laughs> Were your so your parents found religion once mm -hmm. their two kids died, and so by the time you came along, you were born into a religious family, into what is you know we consider it's called Pentecostal. So I was raised Pentecostal, and so my greatest fear growing up was that I would be painting my nail polishes with a girlfriend like hiding it, and then that the rapture would happen and I wouldn't go to heaven. It's a very terrible way to grow up. Lots of like fears what? in there. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. awful. Did you know from the get-go that you were wanted as a boy? It was, you know, there's family lore. Every family of origin has family lore, family myth. And some of ours were, Jill was supposed to be a boy, and I didn't do it. And I did not know, though, until, like I said, till I was 10, that I even had these two sisters. And my oldest sister found the pictures of them and asked my mom who they were. And that's how we found out. I came home from fifth grade, walked in the room, and they were sitting on the living room floor. And my mom was crying. And my mom never cried. And that's how we found out about the sisters. 
And it really did impact my entire life. My entire DNA, as a matter of fact, my mom died. She was 91 years old. The girls had been dead for almost 60 years at that point. And the whole funeral that she had was really a shrine to the girls. They had pictures of the girls with my mom, big pictures of the girls, and a little picture of my mom on the corner. And yeah, it just changed the whole DNA. I raised my children religious because I was raised religious. I no longer am. You know, I, I don't follow those tenets anymore. But it changed the trajectory of our life very much in my life forever. Yeah. And it's interesting to think because I think it was so common in the 60s that when a child died, you just kind of replaced it and moved on. Like it wasn't, you didn't talk about it. And, you know, mm-hmm. I've, I've interviewed parents now who have lost children and have gone on to have other children. And they, it's such a priority to keep that child, the child who died, you know, you know, keep them as part of the family in whatever way that looks like. Mm-hmm. And it's so talked about and yeah, it's just so different. It's so different. And my parents didn't have a way to grieve. Back in 1957, nobody even talked about, like the stages of grief happened in the 70s, not in the 50s. And my parents really focused on um, becoming good Christians mm. so that they could go to heaven to see their girls. And as a matter of fact, when my dad died, I'm going to tear up here a little bit, but my dad died. He was 91 years old when he died. He might've been a little older, but we were told he had eight, six to eight weeks before he would pass. He made it 10 weeks. But every day I would go over to his house and I would have to go through a ritual with him to allow him to leave and transition. Mom's going to be there to see you in heaven. Gail's going to be there to see you in heaven. Your mom's going to be there and go through all the people he loved. So he felt safe enough to die and transition. So I did that every single day for probably 10 weeks. I would go over. So it never leaves. If we don't grieve, when we have a loss, we have to grieve that loss or it will eat us up inside. I believe that really strongly. Yeah. And I've had a few griefs in my life too. I think we all have. Yeah, yeah. If you get past about five years old, you, you start having grief. Yeah. Grandparents and aunts and yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and just so your favorite doll causes yeah. grief when you're five years old. Yeah, that's true. And what about, so you grew up religious and then how does that sort of translate into you becoming an adult, getting married, and building a family? So I was raised to believe that the only thing a woman could do would be to get married. My dad used to say, you know, you can either be a prostitute or you can get married to make money as a woman. He said a little wow. more crudely than that, but that's how he <laughs> said, you know. So I knew I had to get married. I grew up in Colorado Springs where the best shopping place for men existed back in the 70s. It's called the United States Air Force Academy. And I went shopping. I found a husband. I got married. He was an officer in the Air Force. We had this really good life. We had four kids. And I put good life in quotes, Carly, because it was a controlling, difficult marriage. Yeah. And it lasted for 25 years. And one day I had someone say to me, is this what you want your daughter to think love looks like? And I had one of my children who is a truth teller in an identified patient. And he had multiple suicides in one attempts in one year. And I just said, this is it. We're out. I do not have a, a college education. I had never worked because I worked for my husband's career. And I packed those four kiddos up and we left. And I deconstructed my faith. I'm no longer religious. When you say good life, I think that just resonates with so many people. Because, you know, in my talk that I kind of developed through 
the Pred and Joy Foundation, it really was about this, you know, this guidebook to a successful life and what is considered a good life. And if you just follow the recipe or follow the checklist, you know, you're going to have this quote unquote good life, but nobody really talks about what if that isn't actually serving you and healthy and good. And, and so how old were your kids when you made the decision to get a divorce? They were, I have to count too, because there's four of them and there's a big gap. So they were 19, 17, nine and seven. Wow. So, yeah. So I had one going off to college. I packed him off to college. And the day after I took him to college and set him up in his apartment in college or his, yeah, he was in an apartment. I moved into a new house with three kids. My second kid really struggled. And I do have his permission to tell this story. He spent a few years as a heroin addict and we got him out of that. We have been through so much. And on the other side, we somehow survived. I still don't believe in marriage. I've had a couple of long-term relationships, one of which my partner passed away. And so there was more grief, but it's those things that we just, you know, on the other side of it, I'm so grateful. My daughter just moved back home with her partner and her father doesn't recognize her partner because they're queer. And I look at last year, I'll tell this little quick story because this is the epitome of having started out that way and ending on this side. Growing up, Christmas was very religious. No Santa Claus, nothing like that. We got one present. We opened it on Christmas Eve because Santa Claus was pagan and we were celebrating the birth of Christ. And I had always celebrated Christmas with my kids. And last year I just said, I can't do this anymore. Christmas makes me crazy. There's too many expectations. There's too much religiosity wrapped in it. And we celebrated solstice. And Carly, it was the most fun ever. And we had a great time. And my little granddaughter who was 10 said, I just want to do solstice every year. And so we are going to celebrate solstice. We don't do it with lots of gifts. We do it with lots of love. And I sat there last year with, I don't know, 12 human beings that started from my body, really, you know, and they were all laughing and happy and talking to each other. And I thought, this is something I would never have gotten if I had stayed in the life that I signed up for. Yeah. And to watch them grow and be able to really, and my oldest son always tells me, mom, thanks for breaking the generational curses. Yeah. I mean, it really does carry generation to generation. And when you left, was it an amicable divorce or? (laughs) (laughs) No, as a matter of fact, my lawyer told me, and he's he's a very good lawyer. It was a 15-year divorce. It took me 90 days to go through the process. We were through it in 90 days. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe he just let me out so easily. This doesn't make sense. My divorce was final in October of 2007, 2006. Yeah. And then one of those two. And then the following January started 15 years of ongoing high conflict issues. It finally ended in 2021 was the last thing that he had anything left of to come after me with 150,000 on my side of the divorce. And I know he paid more because he had all these forensic accountants and things examining, you know, my little, you know, money that I made that I was hiding from him. And yeah, it was crazy. It was not amicable at all. Um, Not at all. And was he, I mean, he must've been happy to stay married because 
like he had some a wife at home and he was doing the things that yeah i mean i mm-hmm. think men in those situations always fare best because it favors them oh that's just so hard my hope is that the newer like the younger generations aren't being conditioned that way but we were i was conditioned that way and i even went to officer spouse school to learn how to be a good spouse i taught officer spouse school what does that mean? Like, how do you become a good officer? Spouse? How oh, one of the things is you always sleep next to the phone. So that when they get a call in the middle of the night, you answer it first to give them time to wake up and get into their professional voice. Right. You support everything. You go to all the events. You do everything. Oh, I can't even begin to tell you all the stuff I did. I would have parties for about 50 to 75 people three out of four weeks when he was a commanding officer. Thankfully, there was a woman back in the 80s who said, this isn't fair that we give our lives to the military and get nothing out of it. So what I did get is I got four great kids, but I also got guaranteed medical care, which in America is a big hit. In the U.S. is a big deal. So I have military coverage for the rest of my life, and I got a portion of his retirement. That's mandated by Congress. That's how it used to be when I got divorced. It's no longer that way. But yes, he was shocked. I'd been telling him for three years, I can't do this anymore. When I finally filed for a divorce, he didn't know it was that bad. He had no idea. Oof. Yeah. It's crazy. Like life is crazy when we look back at it. In the middle of it, I was in survival. I got to the other side through a lot of work. And my hope is that hopefully my children's lives are better and they're generations are better because I fought through it. I know my life as a woman is better because my, the women who went before me to fight for women's rights. Yeah. Is better. So I hope it's the same for my children when it comes to their relationships. Yeah. I think divorce is so important for kids to see because if a marriage isn't working, they should see the resolution of it, you know, hopefully not Mm -hmm. by conflict, but I think like by what's worse is seeing an unhappy marriage endure just for the sake of staying married. Because I think, yeah, A, I use only language of if, if you choose to get married, if you decide to have kids, you know, because it's not part of the, it's not part of the, I don't know, guidebook anymore in, in my world anyway. I refuse to. I love that. When we were working on your presentation, you introduced that. I thought that's so powerful to change it from when you get married, when you have a boyfriend, when you have a girlfriend, when you have kids, and to look at it as if you do. Yeah. And I always tell my children, although most of them have gotten married, I'm like, please don't get married because you're not marrying the partner. You're creating a legal contract. Yeah. And I was a business coach for years and we never did legal contracts in a business partnership without an exit strategy. But when we get married, there's no exit strategy. Yeah. There's just none. And we need to have that. If we get married, the thing that made me just, you know, anybody that you talk to who's been through a divorce, it's a layering of things that make you come to that point and that conclusion. Mm -hmm. I do believe the final straw for me was like, I'd been in therapy. I'd been working on this relationship, trying to figure it out. My parents were married for almost 60 years. And I do believe they loved each other in a very difficult way. And I went to go congratulate my mom. They were married almost 60 years when my mom passed. And I went to go congratulate her on her 55th anniversary. And she looked at me and said, congratulations for what, 55 years of hell on earth? 
And I just thought, I, I can't do this another day. I was married 25 years. And I thought, I do not want to live my life out. Hell on earth. And yeah. it still struggles. I mean, there's been times there's been no money and my kids are like, okay, what can we sell in the house so we can go buy a prom dress? But I would give that any day for the large amounts of money I had when I was married. The financial security I had was not worth the emotional insecurity. Yeah. And were you still Pentecostal at the time of divorce? I want to say no, but it's so ingrained in you. So we weren't attending a Pentecostal church. We were attending Methodist church. But we had also attended non-denominational churches and, and those have, they're all rooted in just because I have to talk like a feminist, they're all rooted in the patriarchy, right? Yeah. The man makes the decisions for everything. And so, yes, we were in that kind of re church. And as a matter of fact, my kids were in their children's program when I separated from my husband and, you know, filed for divorce. So I didn't go to church with him anymore because that would have been weird. Yeah. But the kids had this whole program at the end of the school year, and I was dying to go see it, and they wanted me to come see it. So I went back to this church I had been attending for several years, but had left, came back. And when I got there, I am not kidding you, not one person would speak to me. They turned their faces from me and would not speak to me. And when I asked them why, they said, well, your husband said that we shouldn't because that would just be encouraging your bad behavior. So we needed to do what he said. So that was the last time I ever went to church. And now I call myself a pagan, witchy feminist. And that really is, you know, I believe in something greater than myself. And my children, I, you know, I have one who's a rocket scientist. He believes in science and that's great. And then I have another one who's a Celtic witch and he believes in the Celtic world. And another one believes in technology. And we just all do what works for us because in the end, that's really what counts. We don't try to put it on anybody else. We just believe what we believe that gets us through our days. That's amazing. And is your ex-husband still religious? Um, I'm taking a deep breath here. <laughs> I believe he still attends church. Right. Mm -hmm. And do your children still have a relationship with him? I I'm going to answer this very carefully because, and I do have permission, but they will always have a relationship. They have his genetic matter. So they'll always have that relationship. But there are two of them that are no contact with him. And the other two have very limited contact with him. I feel badly for him, but I also know he chose it. His behavior chose it. Um, my children's dad is in his 60s. He is a psychologist. He has had enough time to recognize that boundaries mean boundaries. And yeah. we, I just, I sometimes find myself putting on my empathy hat when I really should put on my boundary hat. We were but talking earlier that. All we have really is what's right in front of us. That's yeah. what we got. This is I, your whole life is just, if you haven't written a book, you should write a book. I but did write a book. Did you? It's not very good though. So I don't talk about oh. it much. <laughs> okay. You should rewrite yeah. another book with maybe a ghost writer or with more knowledge yeah. now. Well, the book I wrote was about weight loss because I lost 135 pounds and I got divorced. So I wrote a book about weight loss. And I thought I was being super body positive and looking back eight years, not so much. <laughs> so my TEDx talks, talk is more about really what I wish the book had been about. So maybe I will right. write another book. Carlene, thank you for that invitation. I may just do that. I just think you do the best you can with what you know. And then when you know better, you do better. Do better. So it probably was mm -hmm. written from a place of, at the time, body positivity. <laughs> But it is interesting that you sort of, yeah, let go of the problematic marriage and belief system and deconstructing religion 
and then literally shed weight of those of that heaviness. Yeah. And the reason I carry so much weight was sexuality. I wasn't allowed to be a sexual person in my marriage. And so I had to, you know, I chose to deal with it with food. And I also, yeah. of course, couldn't drink, which would have been more fun or do anything <laughs> else, you know. So food was my way to, to hide from the pain because we all yeah. hide from pain in some way until we get a little healthier. And so do you remember wearing pants for the first time, putting on makeup, yeah. drinking alcohol? I do, so here's a funny story. I was a Mary Kay sales director. I sold cosmetics. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. For many years because I think it was like a reaction to, I would not do that now, but a reaction to not being able to wear makeup. But yes, I was the youngest, but the first time I wore pants was in fifth grade. I wore pants in fifth grade to school underneath my dress. And I was so excited because I live in Colorado and it was cold in the winter. And I got to wear my pants under my dress and I felt very like cool and tough because I had on pants. And then what's interesting is when I gained so much weight, I didn't feel comfortable in pants anymore because I was just very heavy. And when I lost the weight, I own way too many pairs of jeans. I love <laughs> jeans because I can wear them whenever I want to. So I pretty much live in jeans. So I remember that. I remember hiding in seventh grade in the bathroom with my girlfriends, putting on makeup, but then scrubbing it off before I got home because you know I didn't want to get caught up in the rapture. I remember doing all of those first, but then I did them again after my divorce, you know, and I didn't drink alcohol my entire marriage. My former husband told me I couldn't drink, so I didn't drink. And he said we wouldn't have alcohol in our house, so we, I didn't. And that was my first, that was my first rebellious thing in my marriage was I went out and had a glass of wine with my sister when we were still friends. And I was probably in my late 30s. What was that like, that experience? I was so angry at him. And I wanted him to see me drinking a glass of wine, but of course I would never. And yeah. I never told him. But I, yeah. So, and now I drink, you know, I drink socially. I've done so many things to balance out. So, you know, because I can laugh at it looking back, but I really lived a childhood of trauma. A child yeah. who thinks that they can be, quote, left behind because they're not good enough is going to have abandonment issues. Yes. Um, a child who is told, that they're simply a replacement child. And from in my case, I wasn't supposed to be there, is going to have abandonment issues. I'm also neurodivergent. So I grew up in a world where that wasn't even talked about. Like we didn't know what neurodivergency was. And my brain works really different than, I mean, I think it works the same way as a lot of people, but growing yeah. up, it worked different than it was supposed to work. And I knew things without knowing how I learned them because I stared out the window on the playground most of my childhood. I had a lot of deep trauma, so I had to do a lot of deep work to get to the other side. And I'm 60 now, and I don't know that I'll ever stop doing the work. I think there, we always have to keep finding what's next to heal from. Yeah, I don't think there's ever a place where people should just say, okay, I have arrived. You know, I think there's always growth and development and healing and yeah. I mean, I joke that I just wish I could have a therapist like move in with me and follow <laughs> me around to help me like 
you know, unpack things as they come up. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm trying to think of your email because you had listed in an order of where I ended up. That's where we're kind of going, right? Is where we end yeah. up. Yeah. So the one of the things about my family of origin is when my parents died, my sisters cut me out of their life. So there was that part. But in addition to that, my great-grandfather homesteaded a farm in Kansas back in 1886. And I was told when I was younger, I was going to get that farm, just the farmland and the little homestead. And then when I got divorced, I was told I couldn't have it. And then when my dad died, I inherited it. And I had been on this farm three times in my entire childhood. I knew nothing about it. And because I didn't think I was going to inherit it, I didn't talk to my dad about it. So I inherited a farm, which has been like my fifth child. I've had so much fun out there on this little farm. It just changed the, you know, it changed my life. I didn't sign up for it, right? Yeah. I really didn't sign up for it. And I had this little farm out in the 1% of the U.S. that cannot get internet without Starlink, you know, from the place we don't necessarily like. But I, I, it's so secluded. Like, there's nothing out there for miles. And I love it to death. And it's where I find the deepest healing because it has the most peace there. And I feel like I'm walking the same ground my great-grandfather walked. And there's a heritage there that I didn't feel I ever had growing up because I wasn't supposed to be a girl. I wasn't supposed to be born. And there's a heritage of the indigenous people of our country. And I try to give back because I know that my grandfather did not buy that land from anybody or, you know, he just, he homesteaded it. He got it for free. And so I try to give back there, but it's shifted my trajectory and allowing me to have peace in my life that I haven't had before. And my four children bring joy to my life. And my two grandbabies are the best thing. And 60 kicked my butt. I didn't want to turn 60 because 60 is like less in front of me than behind me for sure. And it's been a joy because I get to gratefully watch people like you, like all of my speakers that I work with, my children and their friends, to actually make a better life. That they don't have to go through quite as much deconditioning as my generation did. And I'm so grateful. I raised three boys who still have a little bit of that patriarchy in them, can't help that, but are better than the generation before. Yeah. That's and that's amazing. where we land. And how far away is the property from where you live now? It's a three-hour drive. So it's not oh, very far off. Yeah, it takes me three hours to get there. But it's so secluded. There's just nothing. Like the next closest house is probably four or five miles away. But it literally is just this. And I have, oh, I have to talk about this. I just have to, because this brings me so much joy. I have two owls out there, big horned owls. And they're Sophia and Aristotle. And they had two baby owlets this year. Because I'm not actually my little homestead, the three or four acres my homestead is on. I own 360 acres, but the homestead is on three or four acres. Because I'm not there, but they just live there. And so like when I drive up, they're sitting on the trees and they know me and they're not afraid of me. And it's just the coolest thing ever. We as human nature have always defined owls as wise. And so I watch them and it just, it makes my heart just be so joyful. That's so magical. And I'm so sorry that you don't have a relationship with your sisters. 
that was their decision. Like, they're your two older sisters. Mm-hmm. And what about your oldest brother? So my oldest brother is 15 years older than I am. Thank you for asking. And I love him to death. He was basically given a choice between staying friends with my sisters or staying friends with me. And he chose to keep his relationship with me. And as I watch him age, he's 75. I think he's 75. Yeah, he'll be 76. As I watch him age, I know that I'll be the one. He, he's not married. I'll, I'll, I'll watch over him as he gets older. And he's the one who was most impacted by my sister's death because he was eight years old. Yeah, that's huge. And then mm-hmm. to have that survivor's guilt and... I imagine, like you had mentioned, he wasn't your father's son. And so mm-hmm. in the 60s, I imagine that was very hard for a young boy to navigate being raised it by was. a stepfather. It was very hard. So I just have so much respect for my brother. And he told me one time recently that nobody ever told him the girls were dead. They just said they weren't coming back. And so till he was like 15 or 16, he kept thinking, they were going to come back and he'd find him someday. Oh. And he was never told they were dead. He didn't get to go to the service. And then my parents, in a reaction to having the children pass, they became foster parents. And so we had children in and out of our house all the time. And some of them the same age as my brother, some of them different. Yeah, he had a rough life. My life was traumatic, but I got the cushioning of being a girl. So I didn't have right. to do all the hard stuff. But I also got the patriarchy. So, you know, we do what we do. But yeah, it was hard for him. And I do have a relationship with him. And I love my big brother to death. Oh, that's so nice. Are you comfortable to say, do you know why your sisters stopped having a relationship with you? That's such a good question. You're very good at this. (laughs) Um, So what happened is up until I got divorced, I was a very obedient, very good girl. And I did everything I was told by anybody. And and that neurodivergency too, like I never really understood all the rules in the world. So if somebody told me how to do something, I believed them it was true. And my sisters treated me that way. Mm -hmm. And especially my oldest sister, because we worked together and I just kind of did whatever she told me to do. And I thought she would be really excited about the freedom I would have when I got divorced. She thought, I was just going to become her spouse, basically, and do all this stuff for her because we had a business together and we had a foundation in Ethiopia together. And I was just going to do all these things for her. And I'm like, oh, wait a second. I'm 44 and free and I'm cute. And there's men and let's go have fun. And she didn't approve of that. And so they they have a story. You know that saying you're a villain in someone's story? I'm the villain in their story. They think I was a very bad sister. I was a bad daughter. I didn't take care of my parents well enough. They didn't happen to notice I was raising four kids on my own. And I did spend a lot of time with my parents. Yeah. So that's why they're estranged. They just really, I disappointed them. And they both have their own traumas. And I think about how hard my life was as being the neglected child or the forgotten child, they were where all of the trauma was focused. So I get that's who they are. I get that's where they are. And I choose to stay very separate from them because of some of the cruelty that I experienced at their hands. Yeah. I was trying to think of the other person's narrative of what role I play. If I'm having a hard time understanding, you know, like a dynamic between me and somebody and, you know, like my former co-host, I really struggle with the end result of what happened. And I cannot for the life of me picture what her narrative is 
But I just try to think, like, yeah, every you're the villain in somebody's story. And I, I don't know. I don't know if that makes it better or worse or harder or easier. But I always just try to think, OK, what is this person's narrative? What is their truth? Because it may not be my truth and my narrative is my own experience. But yeah, that's really hard. I spent a lot of years trying to reconnect in the relationship. And I would, you know, it's embarrassing, but I would beg, let's have coffee. Let's get together. Please, I want to fix this. And I finally came to a point, that's not fair to them. They don't want to have a relationship with me. And me begging for them mm. to have a relationship with me doesn't respect, it doesn't respect their boundaries. And so when my parents passed and we no longer had any need to have physical contact, I have not. And my dad's been gone for five years in November. But I learned from that. And my goal raising my children was that they would be best friends and they are all so close. Oh, that's so nice. And I think it's also important as a mom, I have told my children, if there comes a time where who I am is toxic to you, you need to leave because your health is more important than my toxic behavior. And so my kids know that. And I hope that if it were ever to happen, I would respect that. It could be for whatever reason. I don't know. I can't think of one right now because, you know, <laughs> but it, but I always tell them that because I don't want them to have that. And I know for me, I did, I have family of choice. Mm-hmm. I have chosen, they're my soul family. They're the people I do life with yeah. and doing life with somebody is what makes them family. So you didn't go to college. You're just this stay at home, dutiful wife, mother. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you, I read that you were all in our emails back and forth. You also homeschooled your kids. And so- you, you ended up putting your kids into into school, the your younger ones. Horrors, horrors, <laughs> horrors. They went to public school. Yeah. How awful. And thankfully, my older two don't hold it against me that I didn't send them to public schools. They both are, they're both very happy. And they're both like, mom, that was the life we were given. And we're yeah. good with it. And my two younger ones both went to public school. I enrolled them when they were in first and fourth grade into public schools. And my oldest, or it's the oldest of that group, went from having some learning disabilities to graduating as valedictorian of his class. And he is my little rocket scientist. Yeah, I'm like a literal, like literally, he's a rocket scientist. And then my youngest one is a, I don't even know how to put into words what she is, but a social justice, I I don't want to say soldier because she's not a soldier, but she fights for social justice like nobody I've ever seen. She has since she was a tiny little girl. They're all... You know, they have their difficulties, but they've come through. And I did home educate, but one of the things I wanted to teach them was critical thinking. And they all think critically. And in our family, it's a joke. I believe every family of origin has currency. What is the currency that makes you succeed in your family? And I have a friend who their currency is how funny can you be? In our family, it's how can you prove that using the Socratic method? So Mm. we have to have proof when we have arguments about philosophy over the dinner table, you have to be able to prove why your argument has validity to it. And so that's our currency is, you know, we have philosophical, deep, crazy, heated philosophical conversations. So, but what about you? So did you go back to school? What does that look like? Yes. So I did. So I need, I never want to degrade this. I did have a little bit of spousal support and a little bit of child support, but not enough to keep the lights on. So I did anything I could think of. I did. I was a Mary Kay consultant director. I earned free cars. I did the whole thing. So I sold a lot of makeup. And then when that felt so wrong on my soul, I couldn't do it anymore. 
I became a coach and I ran my own business. I never worked a normal job until my kids were in college. And I worked two years for a real estate company and I do not do nine to five well. It just about killed me. And so I came back and chose to shift my coaching from life and business coaching to speaker coaching, which is my passion. It's where I live in what I call, you know, Gay Hendricks calls the zone of genius. It's my favorite place to be. And it keeps the lights on and it supports a silly farm in Kansas. And how did you discover this passion and skill for not only sharing your own story, but I think it takes a really incredible person to be able to hear somebody's story and help them shape it to also become, you know, a storyteller. So I started coaching speakers without knowing I was coaching speakers and I'm still married to the military because I would help people explain why they were a military spouse and why they loved it and why it was important to keep that tradition going. And so I started that way. And then after my divorce, what I realized, Colleen, was I did have money because I came from some money. I had money. I knew how to educate myself and had a really strong support system. And I thought, if I have those three things and it was this hard, what do people who don't have those what do they do? So I started doing motivational speaking and I spoke a lot about how we overcame so many odds. And I don't say me, I say we, because the children did it with me. And then I did that for a long time. And when COVID hit, I had been doing some speaker coaching for TEDx and then COVID hit and I couldn't do motivational speaking anymore. And I started just doing a lot of speaker coaching and I'm so much better at helping other people tell their stories. It's so much um, more comfortable. And since I have that gift, I want to get, I just think that people's stories change the world. I really mm. believe that so strongly. Your story changed my life. It impacted me. I never use the word win anymore, ever. I'm very conscious. And if it comes out of my life, I'm like, I meant if you do that. You know, it's just your story. And then that ripples all around, right? And I only have one story to tell. But if I can help everybody else tell their stories, think of how many lives are being impacted by those stories. It gets yeah. me very excited, as you can tell. And you just do it so well. Like, I've never felt so seen and heard and encouraged. And yeah, I just feel like, I mean, there's probably a lot to unpack there, but just I never want to be sort of like the center of attention or I just feel like apologetic all the time or, you know, I, I don't want to bother anyone. And I had to step out of my comfort zone to, you know, accept positive feedback and work with you and the program. And it was so so great. You oh. kept going. No, <laughs> you're going to say this one thing. You kept going even when it was hard, Carly. There were moments yeah. where you're like, I could feel it. Like, I just don't want to do this. And you just kept going and you reached out even when it was hard. And your story, if you know, I know it's out there in the podcast world, someplace on the keynote queers or on the Pride and Joy, someplace in there. It's so powerful. It changes lives. Thank you for, for pushing yourself to get to that point. And I just went into interviewer, so I'll step back into interviewee. <laughs> no, it was so great. Thank you for saying that. And I, my favorite moment was I was having a hard time articulating why I hadn't filled out the worksheet or, you know, summarized. I don't know what it was, but you very nicely basically asked me if I was neurodivergent. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've got ADHD. And you're like, OK, so now, you know, this is the way that we're going to take things because I was trying to hold myself to this. Uh, method or standard of pre-preparing so much ahead of time and my brain just can't I physically mm -hmm. cannot do it you know when you mm -hmm. kind of gave me this permission and this other way 
and it really helped me flourish with it. And that's what telling our stories does, Carlene, is it gives other people permission mm-hmm. to be who they are. And I'm so glad you took that away. I'm going to tear up over it, but thank you. Mm-hmm. And when we tell our stories, so I just, you know, I want your audience to think about telling their stories to other people too. And you, so you also have a podcast. Yes. Can you talk a bit about why you started it? How, you know, where is it? I know you're sort of shifting because your producer, who is also your son, has gotten a really great job. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so you're kind of Mm reshifting that. But yes. So I'll tell you in a nutshell, as quickly as I can. It's called The Storyteller's Porch. And it comes from the concept when I was growing up, I got sent to my aunt's house a lot. And my favorite part of living with my aunt was that she would, we would all pile on this double bed and she would tell us stories. So that's where I started my love of stories. And then when I was in that two-year position of selling real estate, it was for senior citizens. And these people would come into my office and tell me these stories. Like one of the women, the very first woman ever as a professor at University of Wisconsin. She broke that. And she told me that in the 60s, she had to cross state lines to get married to her husband, who was Korean. You know, just these stories over and over. Another gentleman who grew up in a cabin and was in, Mon- in Wyoming and then became a professor of geology in Wyoming. Just over and over these stories. And I thought, these are just normal, everyday people whose stories are getting lost. Mm-hmm. And so I started it with that concept. And it was just going to be pure stories. But because I am who I am, it couldn't be that way. It has to have meaning because we make meaning out of things. So it is called A Cozy Podcast Featuring Real Stories with Collective Impact. I love that so much. And we're taking a little tiny break. My last one that we produced was with a woman who was at the time 100. She's now 102. Grew up in Kansas. Went through all of that. I, I saw her this weekend. She turns 102 in two weeks, still has full faculty. She does not know who I am, and that's okay. She's only met me a couple times. <laughs> but she knew my family when I didn't know my family, you know, right? Yeah. So it's just, I, I love having people's stories, and we will be re- releasing starting around the holidays oh. when I have stepped into the producer hat. That's so great. And where's the best people place people can find you for coaching and the podcast and like everything that you do. The best place is the storytellersporch.com, which I know is a website, but it has all the links and it has all the things and all the magic that tech people make that I don't know how to do. And I'm old enough that I still have pages on Facebook and Instagram and I have a TikTok, but I don't really know how to use them. So my techie people do that stuff. That's amazing. Thank you, Carly. Oh, thank you so much. I hope you have a great day and I hope we can reconnect again soon. It was my honor. I love what you do in the world, Carly, and I'm glad you're out there teaching us all if and not when. Thank you. Oh my gosh, you are such a goddamn gift to this world. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. I hope you found our conversation informative and entertaining. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to follow me on social media share this podcast with your friends and leave a review at ratethispodcast.com slash I did not sign up for this. Your support means the world to me. If you want more interviews, exclusive content and ad free episodes, join the Patreon at patreon.com slash I did not sign up for this. I hope you all have a fantastic week ahead and we'll talk soon.
Hey there. Welcome to 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. I'm Lindsay, and I'm joined by my co-host and real-life partner, Carling. We're diving into the 90s hit drama through today's lens. Get ready for our off-the-cuff commentary and peeling back the layers of the Camden family. We'll tackle everything from family rules, life lessons, and 90s fashion. Join us every week for a light-hearted queer perspective and a trip down memory lane. Whether you're a die-hard fan or new to the show, this recap is for you. So find us anywhere you get your podcasts at 7th Heaven, a lesbian recap. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.